Hi, Future Hindsight listeners. One great way you can support our show is by sharing this episode with your friends who you think would enjoy it. We have an easy to use tool that makes it really simple to share episodes through email, social media, your group thread, or wherever you share podcasts. And to say thanks, we'll express gratitude to everyone who signs up to share right here on the podcast. This week, we'd like to thank Namita, Amira, Christian, and Kilton. Thank you. We have some other fun perks we'd like to send your way too, including a Future Hindsight button and a Moleskin notebook. Help support the show and get your special link to share at refer.fm slash future hindsight or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you. A few weeks ago, we had a call out for you guys to participate in an audience survey. Thanks so much to all of you who helped us out and took part. We reached our minimum threshold. That's really fantastic news. Thank you. We got some really good feedback on what you like and what you don't like. So, of course, some people thought we don't have enough episodes and some people thought we have too many. So that made our team chuckle. But seriously, we loved the input and suggestions. Also, we do need more data. The more, the merrier, and the more accurate. To participate, please go to our show notes and click on the link for the survey there. It will take about five minutes to complete it. It's a great free way to support Future Hindsight and all the work we do. We hope you'll take the time to help us out. Thank you so much. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Frank Gilliam. He's the chancellor of UNC Greensboro and has spent more than 30 years in higher education, including as dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and professor of public policy and political science. We've talked about how discrimination and bias negatively affect communities of color, and we've also discussed how white supremacy warps our morality. But we haven't yet talked about what we lose as a society on a practical level when we exclude the people who are not in the dominant group. I think it's important for us to see more clearly how racism harms our broader society and prevents prosperity for everyone. Once the leadership collectively opens up their societal aperture, by that I mean they're willing to look for candidates in places where people don't look like them, it provides value to the organization. This is the thing, we're not doing this just because we want people of color and women, just because. We want the best people, so therefore we don't want you to exclude people of color and women. We talk about the power of striving for excellence in all of our students, increasing diversity on campus, especially in leadership positions, and why inclusion breeds excellence. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mila, for having me. Appreciate it. So you are a real role model at this time, and you have such a clear vision about how our society can hang together better. And since you're the chancellor of UNC Greensboro, I thought I would talk primarily about education. 
What are the ways in which racism is systemic, structural, that is not readily apparent to somebody who is white, you know, who doesn't have this experience? Well, I think it's in the same ways that it's not clear to people in society, broadly white people. This plays out in all kinds of meaningful ways. It plays out on who departments hire, who they tenure. Being excluded from those groups is punitive for people of color because that's where many of the decisions are made. Actually, what I've discovered is being in the room more commonly results in you being able to prevent harm being done than it does in you actually doing things to advance uh, these issues. I still experience microaggressions. I was on a call with a group of presidents and I said something and nobody said anything. And five minutes later, one of the other presidents said the exact same thing. And everybody said, gee, that's a brilliant comment. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I just said that exactly. So even as you ascend, you still confront these things. It wasn't collusion. I don't think they did it intentionally. I think that because they are used to hearing their voices as the dominant voices in the room, it is very difficult to understand the dampening effect that has on inclusive excellence. And so in higher ed, all you have to do is look at the leadership and look at the relationship between the ascension and rank and the color and gender of the people at the top. Yeah, I totally hear you on that. I mean, this is a very common experience for people of color and also of women. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> make a comment in a meeting and nobody hears it. And then some white dude makes the same comment and gets uh, applauded, which is just totally infuriating, frankly. But um, <laughs> yes, we have that same experience. One of the things that you do on campus is that you have implemented leadership diversity, which speaks directly to what you just said, that, you know, to have representation in these rooms really makes a huge difference. So in what way can universities, higher education be on the forefront of really changing the way that we perceive the world? We have to have all voices at the table. And I think that we are going to have to engage in a more complete and fulsome conversation around these issues. There are people who don't want to see things change or change as rapidly as they are changing. And we need to hear them out. Now, having said that, one of the important points of having people of color and women in positions, not only in positions of decision-making authority, but also in positions in which they typically aren't in decision-making. For example, it's rare to see a woman who is uh, the head of IT. It's rare to see a woman of color who's a scientist, who's a dean. It's rare to see a female athletic director. It's not just having them, but it's having them in places they typically, you wouldn't expect to find them. And sometimes people's lived experiences 
provide wonderful perspective for a decision maker, and particularly for a CEO. Once the leadership collectively opens up their societal aperture, by that I mean they're willing to look for candidates in places where people don't look like them, it provides value to the organization. This is the thing. We're not doing this just because we want people of color and women, just because. We want the best people, so therefore we don't want you to exclude people of color and women. People assume that the common narrative is that if you have access, opportunity, equity, whatever you want to call it, you must sacrifice excellence. And we are challenging that false dichotomy here at UNC Greensboro. We're the number one school in the state for social mobility. We are the most diverse school in the 17 University of North Carolina system. And we're the only school for the last two years to meet all of the performance metrics or exceed them in the UNC system. So the point being is that you can be inclusive and you can be excellent and it can help the bottom line. And I think it creates a richer culture at the university and models behavior for our students. It's not easy, don't get me wrong. We didn't just wave a magic wand. You have to be intentional about it. Yeah, it's very impressive what you've achieved at UNC Greensboro. It's so powerful to have such a diverse campus and also to be the number one campus for social mobility. What does that mean exactly? Just, you know, because that's also conceptual. Well, what it means is that a student who comes here leaves and in the following five years ends up having significantly higher socioeconomic status than they did when they came. So think about it the opposite. Assume there's an elite private university in which a student comes from a family where both parents are surgeons and they go to an elite university. Well, there's only so far the university can take them that they haven't already started from. There's a ceiling effect, right? All we're saying is our students start without many of the built-in advantages that many affluent students come to campus with. Our students have, across the board, they come with native intelligence, they come with a willingness to work hard. And what we do is try to replicate those built-in advantages that more affluent students come and then put them on career paths that are going to give them a leg up in the marketplace. So we train nurses and school principals and small business owners. We have strong chemistry and biochemistry and we have companies like Sagenta and LabCorp where our students are working. Our uh, local healthcare provider, Cone Health, about 13% of their workforce, which is about 14,000 employees, are UNCG graduates. 95% of our students come from North Carolina and 80% stay in North Carolina when they graduate. So these are kids from small towns and from urban areas who just need a chance. And our job is to provide them with the tools that will improve their life chances over the course of their lifetime. 
Oh, that's awesome. That's very well explained. In what way has higher education really failed minority groups in this country, and specifically probably black populations more than others? Oh, wow. <laughs> that not only is a, a difficult historical and empirical question, but it's a difficult existential question. It's about being intentional that you're going to truly give people an opportunity to educate themselves, which interestingly enough is the way that the society writ large becomes more prosperous. On the other hand, if we look at societies around the world, if we look at authoritarian regimes, for example, what is the first thing they do? They take away education. So when the Americans brought slaves from the western coast of Africa to the United States and they were forced into labor, what was the one thing they didn't want them to do? Learn to read and write. It sounds trite and cliche, but it is true. Knowledge is power. And now increasingly, information is power. Power changes slowly. It just does. And it does not change in a linear fashion. That is, it doesn't just keep progressing. It progresses, it ratchets back, it goes sideways and goes forward again. What we continue to find is that being more inclusive benefits everyone. Think about American society in 1950. You had... The GI Bill, which allowed a lot of men to go to college, to buy a home, uh, and to receive other benefits. And as uh, historians have shown, that was not implemented equally or equitably. And black soldiers did not receive the benefits that near the rate white soldiers did. But let's start there. So now you've got the society, you've got this growing middle class, you've got these jobs. Now think about who is being denied access to this prosperity. Women were excluded from the workforce. African-Americans and other people of color were subjugated to menial roles in the workforce. So think about a society in which you don't allow talented women, talented people of color to participate fully and contribute to the society. Dr. Fauci told the world that the vaccine was developed by an African-American woman. Now think if she wasn't allowed to be a scientist. We're all going to benefit from that discovery on her part. 50 years ago, she wouldn't have been allowed to be in the lab. I don't know where she trained, if she's at NIH, but she got a PhD somewhere and somebody gave her access to education. And everybody's going to benefit. Yes, that's interesting. Also in Germany, the two BioNTech scientists who developed the vaccine for Pfizer, they're Turkish, Turkish immigrants to Germany, right? So they also had that same opportunity and they wouldn't have been in these rooms for the same reason. It's not just that they wouldn't have been in the room. They wouldn't have been able to offer to society a wonderful benefit. When you get the vaccine, you're not going to ask, well, what was the color of the person who invented this vaccine? <laughs> right. You're not. You're just going to take the vaccine. I mean, I'm waiting. <laughs> I right? hope I get I mean, the vaccine soon. <laughs> right. And, and, and even people who oppose this kind of inclusiveness, they're going to take the vaccine. 
They're not going to ask what color the scientist was who discovered this. The theme of what I'm, I'm saying, Mila, is that the denial of opportunity not only harms the individual, not only harms the groups that are denied, but harms a broader society and prevents prosperity for everyone. I, I just am so struck on this vaccine discovery. This is about excellence. This woman's brilliance is going to save hundreds of thousands of lives, maybe millions. That's a contribution, I think. Yes, 100%. Hi, everyone. If you love Future Hindsight, I know you'll love the Civics Club, our Patreon subscription, which gives you early episode drops, ad-free episodes, transcripts, and more. For just $1.99 a month, you can support our indie podcast and be a part of the Future Hindsight community. Head over to patreon.com slash futurehindsight to sign up. See you there. I think a part of it is that for so long, if you had a quote unquote affirmative action hire, <laughs> right, you would just find a random person who was not qualified. And then it would become the sort of, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that they were unqualified people. I think this goes back to the problem we discussed earlier in higher ed. If you do not know where to look, you will not find the best people. But part of the problem in higher ed is knowing where to look. And if your circle is closed, if your network is closed, if who you know is more homogenous than less, then your pool is going to be less rich. And so you hire who you can hire. And most affirmative action hires particularly those that were hired into white institutions, and I say this now in higher ed, tended to not be so-called diversity tires, but tended to be people who were qualified, past qualified, because they had to be able to get there and even get in the game mm -hmm. against all odds, right? And by the way, I think that happens with immigration. It takes a lot to say, I'm going to leave my life, leave my country, leave everything I know, and go to another place and try to make it. You're getting the most motivated people. So when affirmative action started, the best people were there when the opening started to arise. And I think in the academy, much of that's been borne out. People who came in the 70s and 80s were excellent. Their networks continue to grow and They're continuing to populate universities and faculty and administrators. Yeah, there's so much opportunity here in your mind with both this new resurgent movement for equity for black lives, but also for all people of color and COVID. What are the opportunities in higher education to seize on this moment? Well, th that's a good question, but it has it probably has less to do with our general topic and more to do with the way the institution works. So, for example, uh, our COVID response, something, by the way, chancellors and presidents aren't particularly trained to do, that is, <laughs> how do you lead during a, a public health crisis? Right. You but, didn't take that class? I did not take that class at Chancellor's School. Uh, they didn't teach us that. It's like a sci-fi movie, right? That uh, there's a dangerous virus out there and is eating everyone up and please, President, solve it. 
But what we learned, interestingly, is that it required us to have cross-functional groups in the university. As you know, most universities suffer from being siloed. And so we created a a series of cross-functional groups, and people found out that it wasn't so bad working with people in other units. And I think we will continue that practice uh, even after the pandemic has passed. Secondly, I think we learned a lot about information technology and what its benefits are, but also what its challenges are. You know, I think the common narrative is, oh, the students will learn remotely, put them up in your spare bedroom, and they can sit nice and quietly and do their work. But in many families, they're not sitting in the spare bedroom. They're in a household with all kinds of people. They have to take care of their siblings in many cases. They don't have a quiet place to study. They don't have good access or any access to broadband. The challenges that remote learning presents and particularly presents for groups that do not have the resources to take advantage of high-speed broadband, quiet place to study, and no other responsibilities. We found that our students, many of them, want to be on campus. Interestingly enough, it's a challenge for our employees here at UNCG. In particular, it's a challenge for uh, many women who feel extraordinarily pressured by trying to do the things they think best serve their family and also trying to do their work. So we've tried to be as flexible as we can be with our workforce. Our students were on campus. We had 70% occupancy in the residence halls. We normally have 99% residency. So, you know, some students just didn't want to live in the dormitories. I think people have been surprised generally that we made it through the semester. We had no positive transmission in the classroom. The students followed the community guidelines and we were able to get through. But uh, COVID's presented challenges. And by the way, COVID has presented uh, challenges to students of color who do not have means. Many of their parents have been laid off They have to do things to support the family, and it certainly provides a barrier for their uh, educational process. It's been hard on everyone. One thing I wanted to say, it's observational, but I think it's interesting, particularly for the students and for our campus culture. We're not an HBCU. We have about a 23% African-American undergraduate population. But what I've come to believe is that Uh, There's a threshold effect. When I was a student, you're in class, you're the only one or you're one of two black students in the class. When I walked out of class and walked out of the building, I still didn't see anybody who looked like me. Our students will see people who look like them. And I think that there is psychic benefit to that. Our students, our black students and our non-black students, are able to interact and learn from each other and learn about each other, which I think it's all about. You know, when you have a six or seven or 4% African-American student body over a large campus, there's not enough of a threshold to really impact the collective in a way that evokes a conversation 
about our shared humanity. And, you know, heck, if it's just you and you, you come out of the class and it's still just you, you're looking for just a safe haven. You're not thinking about <laughs> much of anything else. So at any rate, it's a pet theory of mine and something that I've observed here on our campus. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think, very different. So I'm originally from Indonesia and I came here actually as an exchange student. And I lived in a very, very super white village in rural Idaho. Anyway, I went to visit San Francisco when I was an exchange student and I thought, oh my God, there are all these Asian people here. Like, what is this other place? I thought America was like this place that I lived in in Idaho. So I, I think there is a lot to be said about your theory that when you are around people who look like you, not all of them, right? But you feel like, oh, I'm at home. This is safe. You know, this is a good place to be. Yeah. I was in Southern California for 30 years. And when I was in L.A., it was great. I could go to these communities and meet people and learn and food, culture. And so I always thought that was terrific. That will come here to the south. It is coming. And you see the signs. And so uh, even in North Carolina, I think a woman who, from Indonesia would find some comfort. <laughs> yes. Well, so I have a question about what everyday people can do. What are two things that an everyday person can do to further equity, to advance anti-racism in higher education? Well, I think one is just be willing to learn and listen about people from other groups. You know, uh, there's all this stuff going on in comedy about black people whether or not somebody's cool enough to be invited to the cookout and uh, understand what the cookout means and how it works and all of that, with that sort of levity, you know, get yourself invited to the cookout. In the African-American community, the cookout has several common elements to it. There are certain behaviors that are acceptable and aren't acceptable if you're not black. You need to know what some of the uh, unwritten norms are. <laughs> yes, you need a guide. <laughs> right? And if you were to come to an Indonesian party, I would guide you. Yeah, and you have to be willing to do that. Right. You know, I, heck, I, I want to be cool enough to be invited to the Indonesian cookout and learn and see what it's about. This is a way to exemplify or amplify w w what everyday people can do. Be willing to listen and learn from people who aren't like you. They're not enemies. We're, for better or worse, we're all Americans. And uh, if this country is to heal itself, if this country is to fulfill the promise of the great American project, what can an average American do? Get invited to the cookout. And, and that's a metaphor for a cross-cultural understanding. The second thing I would encourage people to do, there's a book called Cast, you've probably heard of. I would encourage people to read that. So get invited to the cookout and read Cast. That's a great recommendation. I have one last question. Yes. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? <sighs> Just have to believe, you know, Milo. I have to believe there's brighter days ahead. Uh, it's not going to be easy, but I, I think the society in the U.S. has been a bit of a pendulum effect. So one of these days we'll find an uh, equilibrium where uh, we won't have these dramatic changes. 
but fundamentally, I'm optimistic in people's resiliency and people's desire for a better life. And I think at some point, we'll have more people who understand that you can have inclusion and excellence at the same time that in the end elevates everyone. And in higher ed, inclusive excellence elevates the institution. So uh, that makes me hopeful. And the young people make me hopeful. My kids growing up in Southern California, their friends, circles, they're all kinds of people. Heck, in L.A., people are so jumbled up. A lot of the kids' friends were mixed with all kinds of different mixes. <laughs> One parent was Indonesian. The other parent was Mexican or whatever. Right, you know. right. One, I think race and ethnicity, the borders have been crossed much more easily between young people. Two, I think that they are much more acutely aware to gender identity. They're just all in these groups together, and it doesn't seem to matter as much. So you hope they can live that out throughout their lives. So that makes me hopeful. Yeah, that is hopeful. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight, and thank you for all of the amazing work that you do. Thank you, Mila. I appreciate it. My favorite part about this interview is that inclusion promotes excellence. Chancellor Gilliam's passionate argument that we're depriving ourselves as a society when we exclude the people who don't look like us, whether that's in the classroom, in academia's higher echelons, in medical research, and even in the C-suite, is so powerful. It's precisely because we want excellence that we don't want to deny anyone the opportunity to participate. I also like what he said about being intentional in truly giving people access to educate themselves, which is how societies become more prosperous. For Chancellor Gilliam, the proof is in the pudding. Under his leadership, not only does UNCG rank number one in social mobility for its graduates in North Carolina, it also dramatically increased the number of faculty members of color. And finally, I'd like to reiterate his recommendations. Read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson and get invited to the cookout. Next week, our guest is Dr. Georges Benjamin. He's the executive director of the American Public Health Association. He has deep experience both as a physician and a public health official. We talk about the disparities in health outcomes by race, the negative effects of disproportionate access to health insurance, and recognizing that access to healthcare as a human right is the foundation of sound public health policy. We all have conscious and unconscious biases. And so we know that racism discrimination occurs throughout our society. It also occurs within the medical system. We have structural issues that impede the quality of care. I've worked at the city hospital. We were a trauma center at the District of Columbia General Hospital. We often have what we call the wallet biopsy. So a person would go to one of the private hospitals in town and they would come in with a traumatic condition and it would quote unquote stabilize them. And because they didn't have insurance, then they would transfer them to the city hospital. And of course, disproportionately, these are people of color. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. 
The audio producer is Peter Fedak, and our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.